Hacker Public Radio. Hi everyone, this is Klaatu. I'm at Southeast Linux Fest 2010, um, and I'm hanging out with Mako from the uh, Kubuntu team now, right? So you've switched to KDE, like, sort of officially and publicly? Yes, I uh, posted on my blog about a year and a half ago that I was a trader and now using KDE, but uh, I'm technically not on the Kubuntu dev team yet because okay. I can't upload KDE packages, so... Um, my title still, like, Ubuntu developer, which is actually a change from the last time I was interviewed by you. Um, but that's because I can only upload uh, universe packages, not any of the uh, main packages. Though I did package Amarok for last release. Oh, did you? That's cool. Um, okay, so um, what? You see your title last time was Bug Triage, or right? Uh, bug Control, I think. Okay. But, uh, all developers are members of Bug Control, so oh, okay. there's a hierarchy kind of thing nest. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so this self, uh, your talk was on, quote-unquote, is Linux secure? And uh, it was a really interesting talk, actually. And I, one of the things that I wanted to um, talk uh, or mention, have you mentioned maybe again for me, is the, the whole dot .desktop um Thing that has recently changed, I guess. So it used to be that someone could email you a .desktop file, uh, which is any of those launchers you have on your desktop or in your um, your menu or on your panel, and you could just double-click it, and whatever's on the exec line is just going to go. Now, since anybody could put anything they want on the exec line, you get one of these in your email, that's not very safe, and this was brought up in a blog post that got quite a lot of dig attention, uh, mm. I guess about a year ago or so. And the result of that now is that if the .desktop file is in a user's home directory or temporary directory, and it is not marked with the executable bit, it will not execute. Right. Uh, GNOME and KDE have both implemented ways to inform the user of this instead of you just double-clicking it and nothing happens. Uh, on KDE, what happens is it says, this is the program that's trying to run, and it gives you the full command line. and has a continue button, which will then mark it as executable and run it. Oh, okay. Or a cancel button, which leaves it alone. Uh, KDE puts a red exclamation point on the icon to warn you that this is not trusted right now. Right. Um, what GNOME does is uh, it shows it as if it were a text file, because they are text files. And then if you double-click on it, what I saw in both Fedora and SUSE is a pop-up telling you that it's not marked as trusted and then with buttons that include launch anyway, mark as trusted, or cancel. Uh, in Ubuntu, only the cancel button was there, and that's because Ubuntu has a policy of not giving long explanatory text of why something is bad and then having a but do it anyway button. Okay. While I can understand this, I do take issue with the fact that you've got text that's talking about trusted and the solution is to make it executable, and there's nowhere in that text that tells you that that's what it means. Right, okay. 
I didn't honestly know that the a dot desktop file was the, the the was that little launcher that could be put into the GNOME bar. I knew it was an icon on the desktop, but so that's that's actually the same thing as as in the GNOME bar. Yes. Okay. Um, your menu has is just all dot desktop files. I mean, you, I mean the menu is a list of what desktop files should be in there. But you know, you click one of those in the menu and you drag it onto the panel. Same thing. You click one of those out of the menu and you drag it onto the desktop. Same thing. Okay, so that's something that, I mean, obviously someone would, I guess, download a desktop file or get, like you say, maybe it would be emailed to them or whatever. What about, um, I know that, like, browser root kind of attacks are, are they're kind of the most famous. You know, I mean, is Linux, I mean, I, I, I'm assuming Flash, all bets are off anyway. But, I mean, otherwise, is Linux pretty healthy in the browser space, I guess? So if what you're hitting is uh, an exploit directly in the browser, which you know could be a buffer overflow or something like that, and which is not something a user has any control over. Okay, sorry, hold on. What is a buffer overflow? Right. So buffer overflow is uh, when the programmer assumes you're only going to put this little bit of data in there, and then the bad guy puts in more, and it overwrites part of the program. Now, if this is junk data, that's one thing. If this is data that includes more commands to execute, then all of a sudden you've got arbitrary code running on your system instead of the program that you thought you were running. Okay. Um, that's, you know, often you'll find cases where it's possible in uh, a situation where your browser crashes. Okay. Um, but if you've got one of those and it's a cross-platform browser like Firefox, Opera, Chrome, it's probably going to be a problem on all operating systems. That's what you said in your speech, and I wanted to ask you actually, but obviously you were talking. Um, what? How can that work? Because if it's an exploit or whatever, doesn't that? I mean, in order to screw something up, doesn't it kind of depend on the file system? But Windows and Linux, and and even I'm sure probably OS 10 use completely different file systems, right? So how would they? How would the exploit work on all platforms? Because it doesn't necessarily rely on the file system. If you can get the the browser to do something different than what it's supposed to. And of oh, course, okay. um, as I mean, if you're a web developer, you've learned this because you've had to because Internet Explorer is horrible when it comes to <laughs> rendering. There's this nice little thing in the browser called a user agent string that the website can read and say, oh, I see, you're running Firefox on Ubuntu 9.10 and you haven't patched your Firefox in the last three weeks. Okay, when I go through this, this buffer overflow, I should execute this code because it's a Linux machine, or I should execute this other code because it's a Windows machine. Wow, that's uh, that's really amazing. So that's I guess also, that's also a problem with like drive-by downloads. If somebody wants to just drop a an executable that's you know malware onto your system, use read and string. They know which one to give you. Ah, okay, okay. Um, and so I don't know. It's sounding like Linux isn't so healthy in the browser space then. Cross-platform software. If if, if, it's, if you're using cross-platform software and it exists on Windows, you don't have the uh, the protection, the, well, the sort of false protection that right. comes from being um, a useless target. And again, I have to ask, how how can how bad could it be since Linux has all these built-in like permissions and and you know like. Uh, it's got so much for and and I mean, how would a browser buffer overflow be executed as root in order to you know maybe get through the rest of your files? Or are you saying it doesn't really have to as long as it well, screws up your home directory? It's probably done. So a lot of users would say you screw up their home directory, 
<laughs> well, okay, so the computer didn't crash, but my stuff's gone. <laughs> but on the other hand, um, you do have people who run their systems as root. I mean, your your Firefox, you might, you might run sudo Firefox because you wanted to use the built-in update mechanism that's in Firefox, which requires root because your Firefox is installed outside of your home directory. Or you might be logged in as root because, well, I don't want it to be asking me for permission to do things. I just want it to do them and get out of my way. And well, yes, it is going to just do them and get out of your way. And it's also going to just do them and get out of your way whenever something bad wants to do something. Gotcha. Wow. Yeah, I never, okay, I never thought of any of that. Um, Cool. So are you, um, switching gears from the talk a little bit, are you uh, what would be called a, a master of the universe in Ubuntu? Yeah, that's that's the actual title. <laughs> right. Um, so you are. You you have done that. Yes, I became a Motu back in November. Okay, cool. Um, and so you're so you got the the whole master of the universe uh, position. And I guess what do you what do you see for yourself? I guess next, you know, in the Ubuntu sphere. Within the next year, I'll certainly be applying to the Kubuntu dev team so that I can just directly upload KDE packages instead of getting the packaging done and then having to go around and poke Scott and Jonathan and Rich and be like, hey guys, upload it, please, please, please. Nice. And so you've packaged Amarok. Are there any other, um, I guess, applications that you really, really love that I guess you have your site set on in order to package? I mean, I'm, I know I'm sure a lot of them are already packaged, but um, like... In, well, in the case of the KDE packages, yeah. you know, every time there's a new KDE release, um, the Kubuntu team gets together and everybody marks their name next to whatever package they're going to take and then they try to do it and if if it's if they hit a stumbling block that they can't figure out, then you know pass it off to another person, that kind of thing. Okay. And so whenever there was a new uh, Amarok release, I was in charge of updating that one. But um, there's there is a package that I maintain in Ubuntu and co-maintain in Debian, and it sounds weird to say maintain in Ubuntu whenever we have all team maintainership. It's just well nobody else in Ubuntu has ever touched it, okay. and I'm the one that got it back into the repo. So <laughs> since I'm the Debian co-maintainer, I'm just going to go with that. It's called Spim, and it's a package for um, it's a it's software for running MIPS. Uh, assembly directly without having to assemble it first. And uh, the reason I've been taking care of it is the the textbook for the computer architecture class at my school and at a lot of schools has an entire appendix devoted to how to use that software. Wow. And every example throughout the book says, using SPIM, wow. dot, dot, dot. <laughs> wow. it, it was removed from Debian and Ubuntu back in 2008 because nobody was taking care of the package anymore. And well, whenever I realized I couldn't install it to use it for school, I'd put it back. Very nice. So what's your involvement with Debian? Is that the extent of it, or, or is there more? Yeah, so far, just um, co-maintaining that package. Um, I'm thinking about going to DebCon, which is Debian Developer Conference, this summer. Where is that? Uh, you know? New York City. Oh, yeah, totally. At Columbia University. Oh, cool. Do you guys talk a lot, The you know, the Ubuntu package maintainers and the Debian package maintainers, or...? Yeah, there's um, there's first off there are a lot of people who are both Debian developers or Debian maintainers and okay. Ubuntu developers. Okay. There's also tools that we've made for pushing patches up to Debian, such as submit to Debian is the name oh. of one of the scripts, okay. and you just tell it the patch and you tell it what bug number in Debian it's for, and it just goes. Nice. Um, there's also well actually so statistics are generated from that too saying you know like how many patches get forwarded each release and things like that there's also there are a lot of Debian developers who subscribe to their package within Launchpad which is Ubuntu's bug tracker gotcha. so they can know whenever a bug is reported in Ubuntu because Ubuntu has newer software a lot of times versus versus, sta- course, versus stable course, yeah. Debian of course sure. but um, just Ubuntu has 
so many users and often such newer packages that we do end up getting a huge number of bug reports, thousands and thousands of bug reports open in Ubuntu that are, you know, a lot of them are upstream ones and right. it's very it's become very valuable for a lot of the upstreams to get their newest version into Ubuntu because it means they're going to get the testers they need. Gotcha. One of the projects you mentioned to me earlier was this uh, this sign language program that you're you're actually developing that you're doing on on Py Py KDE or Py Cute or something. What? Tell me yep. more. Uh, it's, it's called Galley, which is after uh, it's the nickname for Gallaudet, which is Thomas Gallaudet. He founded the first um, and I think only liberal arts university for the deaf in the world. Okay. Definitely in the U.S. and I think in the world. Cool. And um, so it's called Galley, which is a nickname for him and for the school, which is Gallaudet University. Okay. Right now, it's 0.5 beta. So far, what it does is you can go through different lessons within, at the moment, just ASL, Mm -hmm. uh, American Sign Language. And you can go through and it will show you different signs and a description of them, including things like how to make the shape in case you can't see the image as well. or um, And also things like, by the way, this sign is similar to this other sign. Don't get them mixed up. Right. And I implemented last week where you can have translations of those explanations in the XML files that define the lessons. And in KDE, you can configure your hierarchy of languages you want to have chosen, and it will pick the right one in the right order for you. But it's still only American Sign Language, correct? Uh, yes. At the moment, it's only American Sign Language. Okay. So if you were a French speaker and you wanted to learn ASL, you could. Okay, um, right, right. For version 1.0, mm-hmm. which I hope to have done by August, Cool. Um, because of when Ubuntu's feature freezes and when KDE 4.0 Seven feature freeze? Seven? Six. Six, 4.6? Uh, yeah, four, yeah. for sure. <laughs> 4.6 or 4.7 because of when Ubuntu's feature freezes and things like that. I want to have 1.0 done in August. And that version would have where you can install other languages, like other sign languages, language packs, nice. into lesson packs into your .kde or into user share KDE, whatever. Um, or path is. Um, And so the goal then in Ubuntu 10.10 will be that there will be a package for you to install the interface for it, and there will be packages to install lesson packs for different different sign languages. And when you install the packages for them, they'll go into user share hierarchy, or you'd be able to uh, install the lesson pack yourself into your .kde, and hopefully also using KDE's Get Hot New Stuff protocol, be able to just pull them down and have them automatically be dropped into your .kde for you. That would actually both of those solutions are cool, but I I, I personally love that get hot new stuff because it just makes it so easy to get cool new KDE stuff that you can trust. Speaking of security, <laughs> yeah. um, what about like because I know that probably I mean I don't know a whole lot of sign language, but there is some sign language that involves actual motion, you know. And usually if you look it up in a book, there's just like a little arrow drawn, you know, like here, move your hand from here to there. Are you thinking about doing some kind of like animation? So you know. Uh, it actually uses either a JPEG for a sign that doesn't move. Right. You just take a photo of yourself. Um, or I have uh, Augs Theora videos. Oh, nice. For okay. moving signs. Okay. And actually, I have. You know, I did this as part of my senior design project with making this. Okay. And that I finished at um, the end of April, and it's you know first the second week of June right now, mm-hmm. and I have already had one person send me changes to one of the ASL lessons. Okay. Cool. And have she? Her name's Tara. She and another guy have um, said that they will make more lessons for it because nice. uh, one of them is mute and one of them is deaf. Okay. And so they rely on ASL, and so they're 
they're right there and they're going to help because I'm not fluent. Okay. <laughs> and also I mentioned the translations in the lesson pack. Within a day of, you know, within 12 hours of completing that translation feature, I had French and German translations submitted to me. Wow, that is really cool. So tell us the gory developer details. Like what did you, what, K-Develop, uh, Cute Creator, Vim, like what did you use <laughs> and what's it written in and all that other good stuff? So it's, um, I was going to write Python from scratch, only I'm not, this is the first time I've ever used Python in like a, a big object-oriented way. I've used oh, okay. Python as, well, it needs to be more advanced than Bash. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I, I don't really want to use Perl regular expressions to parse XML, <laughs> so I'm going to use Python's XML DOM. And so this is the first time that I actually wrote a full program using Python. I was going to write it from scratch, and then I talked to Jonathan Riddle, who is one of the Kubuntu developers, and he said, oh, go use KF template. What? What is this? And it's, it turns out to be really awesome. You run KF template, and it says, so, would you like a C++ cute application? Would you like a C++ KDE application? Would you like a Python cute application or a Python KDE application? Nice. And uh, a few other options are variations sure, on those. Sure, And then it just spits out, um, you know, here's your, your main, you know, what do you want it to be called, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it spits out your main thing that's .py, and it gives you a .ui file, and you open the .ui file in cute designer and make your interface look how you want it to. Wow. Then you know you write all the actual interaction code in the in your regular.py file, okay. and uh, since it and it spits out a readme that's like, by the way, to get the UI file into a Python file that will be imported automatically because I already because fil- it already fills in the boilerplateness that says import okay, the output yeah, of that UI sure, file. Sure. Uh, run pi kde uic for minus o file name minus o the dot ui file and okay. it just does it. Nice. So it took a few hours to figure out how to use Cute Designer. Uh, it <laughs> just a few hours. Well, and and make the UI. I mean, um, it would probably take me two weeks, maybe four. <laughs> I think it was about eight hours total to get a a decent UI, and including the part where I had to figure out how to use Cute Designer. I, I've used Glade before, which is the GTK version, right, like the, okay. the GTK program for this uh-huh. kind of thing. And at first. Uh, because I was more used to how Glade works, I was really confused with layouts in, in KDE mm-hmm. or in, in Cute Designer, and and then I realized, oh, in Cute Designer, I can just select some some objects and say these go horizontally, and they will. Uh-huh. Whereas in in Glade, I would have a a table that has vertical that has a bunch of columns, and okay. I'd put something in each column to get them to line up horizontally. Right. Wow. And then yeah. if I decided I wanted them to vertically. I delete them all, oh, get rid of the table with the vertical columns, yeah. put in a table with horizontal columns, wow. <laughs> and put them all back. Wow. This is probably a weighted question and probably probably very highly I controversial. Speaking, by the way. I, I I can tell. So is and this might not even be a proper question because I don't know anything about this kind of stuff. But is Cute Four more more advanced, slicker than GTK right now? Uh, I had this. Ex- explained to me a while back, and it seems to be true, okay. that the way GNOME works mm-hmm. is you build an application, and the next time you have to build an application that does something similar, you go, oh, we should turn that part into a library. And, and the way KDE works is you go, what could people possibly want to do? Let's make libraries for that. And so when you go to write a KDE application, you sit down and go, hey, look, I've got like 15 libraries, and I just plug them together, and magic happens. And in GNOME, you go, hey, I want to write something, and in the process, I can turn it into a library. 
kind of the opposite direction of working. Why is that? Is that the culture, or is that the way that the development environments are built? Or I mean, like I'm I'm not entirely sure. I think part of it has to do with the fact that uh, Cute had commercial backing, mm-hmm. and so you had Troll Tech making Cute and going, "All right, we want to get proprietary software developers to pay us to use it, so we'd better make it really easy for them." Okay. And so they wanted it. You know, they would have wanted to have lots and lots of yeah, yeah, like special features and libraries yeah, in Qt that make it really simple for uh, developers to just go. So that so the developers are sitting there going, well, we could use GTK, uh, but then we have to write a lot from scratch. Or I guess we could just pay for a Qt license, and then we can just plug these little pieces together and be good. And you know, nowadays the case with Qt, uh, I don't know if you're aware of the licensing changes, but nowadays with Qt licensing, it's I think. GPO or LGPO? I think they, it was going to be GPL version three. That's what at the Google event okay, so GPL. for KDE4, but it's not. I think it's LP, G, LP. LGPL. Yep, I, I'm pretty okay. sure. Which one? Which one is GTK? It's the other one. Yeah, that's the other one. <laughs> no, 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 GPL. no, no, no. G, GTK and and Qt. One of them is GPL. One of them is LGPL. And I don't know which is which. I think Qt is GPL. That way, if you want to write open source software, you're good. Mm-hmm. And if you want to write uh, proprietary software, you're paying. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and it puts a really good incentive on people to open source their software because right. yeah. if they want to do it cheap, they have to do it open source. Whereas yeah. with GTK, it's LGPL. And if they want to do it cheap and proprietary, well, you're just linking against it. Go ahead. Right, right. Okay. So in your opinion, because I was actually just talking to Celeste about this too, in your opinion, is it important for, I mean, Qt being the cross-platform thing that it is, you know, how important is it for an application to be um, cross-platform, run on run on everything? So I'm of two minds about this. I, on the one hand, you've got, well, if it runs on Windows, we can get people used to it on Windows, and, and then later on go, you know, you could switch to Linux and still use this. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't you know, require you relearning. On the other hand, if our um, killer apps are cross-platform, they're not killer apps anymore. You've got somebody going, oh, gee, that program for Linux looks really... Wait, I can run it on Windows too? Well, never mind. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's going to depend on the software and and what point it's at. I think if it... I think when it gets to the point where it's a a flagship application where you're saying, we have this and Mm -hmm. we are special because of it... Right then you don't want it to be a cross-platform app. Right. You want it to be something where it's incentives to switch. Uh-huh. So I guess it probably depends on like the size of the project, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I guess if you literally did that, or there... how much better it is. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> the degree of how much better, you know, the percentage of... You diff like, the, the like, application like, sets. For example, like, OpenOffice is, you know, it's not really better. It's not really worse than right. Word. And it's... And it's, it's a true kinda, alternative. It's kind of compatible. Mean. It's just like, yeah. it's a straight alternative. Yeah. And so... You get people used to it on Windows, they can switch, it's fine. Whereas, for example, Amarok, there is no application is on nothing. Windows or Mac yeah. that competes with Amarok. Yeah, yeah. It does not exist. Yeah. And so whenever you've got something that is above and beyond like Amarok is, you don't port that to Windows. <laughs> <laughs> then that but isn't that, I mean, that's extremely political. I mean, that's like, right. that's really like biased I, I, I know. Know, and, and motivated for like all the wrong reasons. I know. <laughs> Which I guess is why we like it so much. Um, all right, so one last question. Um, tell me about, because I know you're in, have, I, I think heavily involved in this as well, is the Ubuntu Women. What is it, um, what's it all about? What are the goals of it? 
So back in, um, I think, 2002, a study was done, and they found that uh, within developer communities of open source software, there were 2% of developers were women. And um, how, how many? 2%. Wow. As in there's a single digit there. Right, okay. And about the same time, some EU commission released a study saying that in software development in general and commercial software, you had 28%. Oh, wow. So we're talking 14 times difference. Yeah. And that led to a study that was conducted called Floss Pools, where they uh, surveyed women who were involved in open source software and, and, and a bunch of men, but a whole bunch of developers, right? And said, so, have you seen like sexism? Have you seen this sort of thing happening? And the answers you get from the women and men differ greatly. Surprise. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and it launched sort of a, a more of an interest in finding out well, how can we fix the community? Something that started happening then was different districts have women's groups, and there's uh, there's also Linux Chicks, which I'm also involved in. Oh, okay. But the goal of the Ubuntu Women Project is to encourage and help more women get involved in the community and get involved, um, you know, in in whatever capacity, whether it be programming or translating or testing or documenting or unbreaking the kernels. Mm. <laughs> um, right. We have you know, there's. Um, well, you've, got Le- a patch. you've got a patch. Yes, I do have a patch in the Linux kernel. I know that. Um, yeah. There's Leanne on the kernel team who she just steamrolls through bugs. Oh. What we found a few months ago, started about six months ago, started counting. There, there's, there's a status within Ubuntu called Ubuntu Member, and it's if you've had a sustained contribution to Ubuntu. And that contribution could be programming, it could be documenting, or it could be advocacy, or any of those things I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And... Um, went through the entire list of Ubuntu members, all 500 and some odd, 523 at the time, I think, mm. and counted up, all right, which one, who are all the women, what percent are they? Mm. We came up with 4.5% 4. at the time, and, you know, it fluctuates month to month by about, you know, 0.1%. Okay. I think it's at 4.4 right now. Okay. Um, <laughs> but trying to see, you know, what percent of the involved people within, within Ubuntu right. oh, are women. Right, okay, I see, yeah. So... Yay! It's double what it, mm-hmm. what right. what overall open source was uh, eight years ago. Um, on the other hand, that's still a really small number. <laughs> well, okay, and so it sounds like you've put a fair amount of thought into this. Why do you think that is? I mean, surely it can't just be because of sexism, or maybe it can be, but like sexism here and there, like sexist comments or like you know inappropriate comments and IRC. Or, are women not coming to the door at all to knock on it, or are they knocking and then getting you know like turned away? Or I mean, what's the? Uh, I mean, it's, it's going to be a mix of things. Uh-huh. Um, I've recently been reading the book Unlocking the Clubhouse Women in Computing, okay. and it's about you know the leaky pipeline. You've got girls being knocked out of computing when they're like 10 years old just by right. it being not—it's not girl, it's not girl stuff. Right. That's yeah. boy stuff. And then getting knocked out in high school um, whenever they go into—you know—my first uh, programming class. I was in 10th grade. I walked in and I heard somebody say, "What's a girl doing in here?" Uh, okay. <laughs> and yeah. things like that. And yeah. you hear them enough times, and eventually at some point, you just go, maybe I'm not supposed to be here. Yeah, right? I imagine there's got to be a point where you... There's the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? <laughs> or that it doesn't, right? I mean, isn't is there there's, like a point where well, you like have to decide whether you're going to fight for this, or if, you, and if I think, it's too much work, if it's too much trouble or yeah, something? Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with your support network. Like, like right, I said, okay. I'm, I'm with Linux Chicks, Ubuntu Women, oh, okay. um, a little bit with Debian Women, too, Okay. and 
one of the first things that happened when I started using Linux. I mentioned to one of my MySpace friends, Valerie, hey, I just tried, started using this Ubuntu thing. And she goes, oh, you should join Linux Chicks. Okay. I'm like, what's that? She's like, oh, here's how you get the IRC channel. And she explained to me how to use XChat and all that. Right. And, um, you know, through that and through having, they've been like mentors, the okay. my for four years that I've been using Ubuntu, it's been, you know, if I have a question, I know I can ask them and I'll get an explanation, including more background info than just like a Wikipedia entry would have given me and yeah, yeah. like, you know, everything I need to know. What? And it's, it's, it's so useful when it turns into like, um, I have a younger cousin in like, you know, fourth or fifth grade mm-hmm. and she has an Ubuntu laptop. And last year I was explaining Ada Lovelace Day to her and why one of my computers is named Ada, and one of them is Betty, which uh, if you don't know who I mean by Betty, then go look at the ENIAC women. Two of them were named Betty. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the one that I'd given her was named Grace Hopper. Oh, okay. And I was explaining, I explained to her what an interpreter was, what a compiler was. Wow, okay. (laughs) How, you know, punch cards, all that stuff, and about how, you know, ENIAC, they had to replug wires and everything. And I'm like, and nowadays there are some people who think that computers are boy stuff and that girls can't do it. But, you know, we'll show them. <laughs> and she goes, yeah, we'll show them. Cool. <laughs> so that, I guess that is, that's what those organizations, that's what those groups are doing. They're the support network mm-hmm. that prevents the person from saying, it's not worth it. I'm not going right. to, like, bother it's, anymore. It's, you, you know, you've got, someone's got your back and you've got other people showing you that, no, really, women can do this stuff. The people who say that they can't are completely wrong. I mean, if, if women couldn't do this, like Valerie Aurora, I met her at a Linux Chick uh, event back in uh, October 2006. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's responsible for no, rel A time option in yeah. EXT3. She's yeah. responsible for massive uh, performance improvements in EXT2 and EXT3. She helped design ZFS. Like yeah, I I I, I read her blog a couple of times, and um, it's She's so scary. far. Yeah, I, I literally I was just like, no, this is not. I don't belong here. This is way beyond me. But yeah, that's pretty cool stuff. Okay, well, thanks for talking to me, Mako. That was really really informative. All right, welcome. Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by Caro.net. So head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.